I'm Jessica Peresta, host of the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Teaching While Queer is a podcast for 2S LGBTQ plus educational professionals to share their experiences in academia. Hi, I'm your host, Brian Stanton, a theater pedagogue and educator in New York City. And my goal is to share stories from around the world from 2S LGBTQ plus educators. I hope you enjoy Teaching While Queer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Teaching While Queer. Today, I'm excited to have joining me the 2022 Kentucky Teacher of the Year, Willie Carvey. Hi, Willie. How are you doing? Uh, Great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, What do you teach or what did you teach? Um, How you identify within the community, all that jazz. Sure. Present tense is still okay for teaching. Uh, (laughs) I have taught French and English through 15 years-ish. Um, I couldn't choose between the two um, and just naturally have done both. I used to teach at the high school level. Um, that became more and more difficult in the last five or six years. And I won't teach in K-12 through right now uh, because of lots of different um, policies that are happening. So I'm currently at the university level. I work at the University of Kentucky. I work at... Um, Bluegrass Community and Technical Colleges and some other colleges and teach online French and English uh, at the time and some in-class person, uh, in-person classes as well. Um, I'm a big gay Appalachian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm an author. Um, So this year, the last couple of years have just been wild. I was teacher of the year. Then bad things happen. And then because of the bad things, I wrote a book and the book is being, it's, it's, I'm very happy with the, with the response to it. Um, so that's now got me really busy um, doing speaking engagements. Otherwise, um, I'm a youth advocate um, specifically for LGBTQ youth because I think they're a group that rarely has any adults uh, articulating their needs. Um, I work a lot with Appalachian youth. Um, I work for the Kentucky Youth Law Project for Fairness Kentucky, a Campaign for a Shared Future. Um, and some and some really super specific local groups, but our goal is to find those get those ever widening gaps um, in that that exist because of what's happening in schools, and to fill those. So that's that's a lot of work. That's a lofty goal, mm-hmm. especially with it all was, those book banning that's happening at the moment. So we I can't just imagine. Opened, yeah, we just opened a Rainbow Freedom Library um, in Montgomery County, Kentucky. They the students actually won a grant um four thousand dollars worth of diverse books and their superintendent who was my former superintendent rejected all of them um imagine children having a dream they wanted these books because one of their classmates had attempted suicide um and they had all already been trading books so they had this idea what if we got a bunch of them so they made a great video project turned into it gets better these kids win ten thousand dollars total four thousand for books they ended up giving half of those books to another school because that school lost a child lost an lgbtq youth and they wanted to do something to show their concern 
these are the kind of kids who are trying to change the world and the adults are just crapping all over them. Um, that so, kind of advocacy at that age is so wonderful. Like, it really is. Uh, so we were, I, I basically contacted some groups, found an art center that said they would take it. We put a GoFundMe up and said, here's our goal. If anyone in this county wants access to this books, we just want to make sure we can get them out. So we want some funds to, we made like $7,000 in a couple of weeks. That's amazing. Uh, so yeah, we've been we're super lucky with it. And our goal now is to repeat that across the, we have 120 counties. I don't know how many we're going to get. But. Yeah, that would be super cool to hit them all though. And mm -hmm. the fact that it was like a grassroots movement from the children, it's just like, it's a, it gets you hope for the future. Yeah. And, you, and that's what, that's what teaching is, right? We're, we're looking at these young people and telling them, imagine something better than what is. And then they articulate it. And then we're, we try to, you know, find whatever resources they need, find whatever learning they need to help their, their hope become reality. Uh, that's what's so particularly difficult right now is we see grown adults stomping on the hopes of children. Um, and it's, it's the opposite of education. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because there's been this huge push as far as education goes on like having niche type programs like business incubators where you can have Shark Tank at your school um, yeah. and all that stuff, which is so brilliant and so amazing. And it's that same thing. It is allowing these students to address a problem and come yeah. up with a, stu a solution and then support it. And it's yeah. like, we should be doing that all around. Yeah. And it shouldn't just be like, because we have. It's sort of like student-led initiatives are great unless those students are black, brown, or queer. Yep. And then, no, 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 no. Let's force you to read the straight, white, non-brown thing um, and stop talking about yourself. I mean, that, that's literally what we do. It's so interesting about how schools push back on that stuff, too, because I worked for a school district where a student had committed suicide after attending, like, the school, the student transferred to another school, and this was right before I started there, transferred to another school, but was still being cyberbullied by kids from the school I was teaching at, um, committed suicide because he was perceived as gay. His parents went on to create a foundation and get laws passed in Texas, and they're working on national laws about cyberbullying and all that. So this, this amazing work is happening. But I feel like in the last four years, really the last three years, that school district has gone backwards on their support of mm -hmm. anti-bullying, period. Yeah. I worked at a school that chose me 10 years ago to be, maybe seven years ago, to be the anti-bullying person. And I brought this program in Alveus, as what it was called, to, to sort of help implement it. And now it's the exact same situation that you're describing. Anti-bullying equals, I don't know, being against people who want to be violent towards LGBTQ people, and that's their political beliefs now. So the schools respect that. Um, I had... When I became teacher of the year, uh, which was such a beautiful thing, and it happened at the state level, my county hated me. <laughs> they hated me. They, I, I would not have been teacher of the hallway, not for a day. Uh, not even if every other teacher had had it five times. It was not going to happen um, because I was queer um, from my perspective. So um, it was really nice to be recognized from the state um, because we were doing some pretty awesome things in that school. And it was really the students who were doing it, that advocacy that you were talking about. Um, so adults started attacking, 
um, first me. Um, so they were going to board meetings. It was inappropriate that I existed really um, as a queer teacher. There was, uh, they were suggesting that it was nefarious that anyone should know I was gay and that was proof enough that there was something hypersexual about me and inappropriate about me. And on the advice of lawyers, I refused to respond. Um, and then those attacks moved to social media and online and they got really big, really fast. And on the advice of my lawyers, I did not respond. And because I'm not responding, they start attacking the children. Um, so they were actually sharing pictures of my now former students at their after school jobs, sharing their faces and their names and where they were. And we begged the school to intervene. They could have done anything. They could have talked about what this group did. So this was, it was technically an LGBTQ affirming positivity club. So the goal was positive systemic change. And one of the positive systemic changes that they did was called it an LGBTQ affirming club so that there was a space. But their primary work was cleaning parks, raising money for hurricane victims. Um, they taught themselves black, brown, and queer history. They literally taught themselves once a week because our schools weren't teaching them. Um, and the school would not speak up. Their response was, we can't respond every time someone has a complaint. Meanwhile, students are being threatened. The police had to get involved because one of the threats was so sincere with one of these former students that they had to remove her from her home. Um, and the school protected those parents' rights to be hateful over the rights of those students. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's some, I don't know, a silver lining. Um, one of the things the last events that happened when I was still in the classroom. Um, this, this student group was very concerned. One of their classmates had attempted suicide. And these kids are smart. They, they follow the news. They understand the basics of psychology and sociology just from reading. So they knew about the importance of representation and they knew about the importance of directly addressing these issues. So they wanted to do a climate survey. Um, so I was like, okay, let's let's talk about the climate survey. So they we met with the Kentucky Student Voice Team. It's a nonprofit that had done a 53,000 response survey. So we met with them, talked about how to do this sort of work. We met with researchers at the University of Kentucky so that these students can make sure that they had a valid, reliable, accurate, authentic assessment that was fair. Um, and then they made the assessment. They presented to the English department about why this was important. And every single English teacher said, yes, let's share your survey in our classrooms. Any student who wants to access it can. No one will be forced, obviously. Um, they banned that survey. And I, I think it's obvious to anyone paying attention why they banned it. They banned that survey because they didn't want anyone seeing the results because that survey was specifically measuring the levels of homophobia that kids faced at school, not just from their classmates, but also from their teachers and their administrators. Um, so I love, not that they banned it, but that they banned it hoping that that information would never get out. One, I've got that information because 200, over 200 students responded. Um, two, there have now been something like 65 news stories about the homophobia in the school district. Um, and those news stories have happened in the UK, Australia, um, the United States, Canada. So I love that the we're not going to bury this. 
Um, and so I was happy to quit because that frees up for me the opportunity to consistently talk about this anytime that I can and to make sure that we're not covering up the intense transphobia and homophobia that are happening in our K through 12 schools. Because those students have every right to be just as free as any other student. Absolutely. So let's dive a little bit into your background. What was it like for you? You've got these amazing queer and ally students that you've worked with. What was it like for you as a queer student? Um, you know, it's not that is, <laughs> is the short answer. I, I think I'm, I'm really lucky in some ways growing up when I did and mainly the 90s in that I did not exist fully as a human yet. I did not, there was no queer part of me that was articulated. I don't think I really had a language to articulate it, at least not to other people. Um, the, the language I had was Jerry Springer. Uh, literally yeah. there are two poems about Jerry Springer um, in my collection because if nothing else, I knew someday I will grow up and here's some version of me that's still alive, right? Um, maybe they're being made fun of, but they're still here. So I had that idea, I'll still be here. I just didn't know what it would look like uh, or who I would have in my life. Um, and I knew that by fourth grade. Um, and then um, I was lucky that school was outside of that silence, not a place where people were trying to harm. People just didn't know how to help. Um, so school was always a good and decent and positive place um, and a stable, warm place where I didn't, use, I didn't have that in all other aspects of my life. Um, there, were, there were times when there was, you know, maybe no food or no electricity or no warm water, but school always had those things. So school was this like magic place uh, that I loved from day one uh, and always wanted to be a part of it for that reason. Um, and I guess, I don't know. I, I look back, I didn't come out in high school. I didn't try to come out in high school. It wasn't until college that I really um, did. And I was lucky. Um, I come from a Pentecostal family in the back of Appalachia. And everyone, my immediate family was okay. My, my mother had no issues. My father had no issues. Um, all in all, considering what so many people I know had to go through, I was super fortunate. Um, and I think that sort of informs why it's so important for me to be an advocate now. Um, because I know, I know, it's almost like I owe the world, right? If, if I got this great experience, if I had people who loved me and didn't turn on me, when almost every friend I have had that experience, then I need to use that in, in some positive way. Um, but once I came out, there was no putting me back. Uh, <laughs> so, so I was super out, super loud, um, very proud to be queer. Um, and I kind of had this defiance uh, when people were like, why are you going to be a teacher? And I was like, I'm going to make it work. Um, and it was, there's something, okay, I'm going to get weird, but <laughs> uh, we have two new kittens. And one of the kittens is like this big, but she just assumes that she's going to run the world. And what I love is we have this adult male cat and he has like cowered to her multiple times. 
because she just walks up like, what are you going to do? And he, but the other kitten who is actually slightly bigger than her, uh, that, that kitten is Dahlia. She's um, clearly afraid of the world. And the other cat, our older cat right now, because he's trying to figure everything out, kind of takes advantage of that. Um, and I don't want this to sound like victim blaming because it's not victim blaming. Um, but because obviously she doesn't deserve to have a cat go after her, right? But I did sort of have this idea that like, I will refuse to let you make me feel bad. I will refuse to let you make me feel afraid. Um, and that, that kind of defiance made it possible for me to be in environments um, that some other people couldn't be in, I think. Um, and again, I, I owe that defiance, I think, to having a family that loved me and supported me. Um, and not everyone gets that. So this is not defiance good, you know, protecting yourself bad. Some people need to protect themselves. Absolutely. What I think is interesting about your story is that I wonder how many of us who grew up in the 90s um, had that experience of like not knowing what the future looked like because there weren't examples of it. Because as you mentioned, like there's these people on Jerry Springer and they're alive. Yeah. Because all the other news was, uh, you know, gay men die. Yeah. I, I grew up like a lot of men in the 90s. I'm sure just like AIDS just seemed like the inevitable, right? Like there was, that was the future that was sort of laid out for me. Um, I think so many of us thought that um, because that was, that's the narrative, right? And, and what, does, what, what does narrative theory teach us now? Humans think in stories. We don't think in other things primarily. Um, I've had a vivid memory. I was at a party uh, junior year um, and there was a, drag queen um did reba drag zachariba and but we were at this party and everyone uh zach just kind of says look around what do you see and i'm like i don't know like 30 <laughs> hillbilly gay guys like oh, what is the answer here and she goes you really don't see it and i go no and she says everyone is smoking and i'm like well, that is kind of strange isn't it everyone in this room and i said she said do you know why and i said no and she said none of us imagine we're going to make it to 50 anyway and you know this was 2001 but the moment she said it like the body seizes when it when it recognizes like this is an unarticulated thing that we've all been thinking um so i think there was a lot of truth you know drag queens and their truth um so they know um, how to tell it how it is they do beautiful thing zach disappeared um he, he was there once and then just gone so i didn't talk to him for years I, I didn't have social media either, which probably made it much harder for me to get a hold of people until this year, uh, 2022. So I, I had a moment the day before we meet the president, actually, where I was just like, I can't teach anymore. I can't do this. And I tweeted something desperate. I had like 200 followers, um, something like I'm the 2022 Kentucky Teacher of the Year. I'm a proud gay man, but I'm exhausted and I cannot do this anymore. Um, and then I went to sleep and then I woke up and I had like 65,000 responses. Um, and of all of those people, I see this person being like, hey, I made it and uh, I'm, you can make it too. And we're going to be OK. Um, you can be my friend if you want. And then I notice it's actually Zach who had gone to Tennessee, gotten his doctorate um, and kind of made it. And there we are, like reconnecting a decade later um, anyway. I say all this to say 
the moment that we actually got back in touch, he was like, well, here we are. And I was like, here we are, because we didn't. That's really beautiful. I get so frustrated because I feel like um, I, I've talked about this a couple of times on the episode and on episodes that will air in the next month or two um, about like feeling this generational loss. Like mm-hmm. I feel this generally generational loss having grown up after an entire generation of gay men was yeah. all but wiped out. And so like, and, and that's the thing for me is that, I, uh, I'm a very spiritual person. I, I am Wiccan. Uh, so I, I believe in a lot in intuition and whatnot. And sometimes I have dreams that kind of give me hints about like what life's going to be like. And when I was younger, I never dreamt past high school. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was an adult and like, you know, doing things where I was like, Oh, well, I guess I have to have a future because I, I never envisioned even where I'm at in this moment. Um, that I realized just how traumatic that was of like mm-hmm. not knowing if I would have a future just because of who I was and the narrative that was being told about people like me. And it's so triggering now because that same playbook is being used now. I think of yeah. all the things that are happening right now and then I just go right back to Anita Bryant. Um, and mm-hmm. and it's like, here we are 30 years later and you're recycling the same, yeah. the same exact rhetoric. You're just modernizing it. Yeah, and you know, we paid attention, right? You and I paid attention to what adults were saying in the room. You know, every, every time the word queer or gay or whatever came in like to conversation, we we took every word in because we were desperate for any information. Um, so I think it's much easier for us to remember the sort of things people were saying, you know, in, in, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I think there's a lot of um, straight, cis people who are you know, regurgitating this same stuff, who think that they've invented it, who don't realize the extent to which they heard this so often when they were kids, um, and it's easy for us to remember it. And I think sometimes that might be harder for them to remember um, because they didn't care. They had no reason to care. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it is very traumatic. And that's why it's all the more important to fight so hard. And I also think, you know, when we were kids, this, this concept of queer childhood didn't exist. And for good reason. Um, Keith Elston is the president of the Kentucky Youth Law Project. And he created this group like late 90s, early 2000s, I think, um, but it was a while ago. He created it to protect LGBTQ youth on a legal basis. And he said he had this moment of realization where he thought, gay men don't talk about children. We don't talk about kids because we have been conditioned to fear them. We've been conditioned to think that if anyone even hears us talking about kids, they will somehow make an accusation, right? And he said, and the the result of that is that there are so many defenseless queer kids who have no one to take up for them. So he sort of said, I will do this. I will create a group as a gay man and I will protect gay kids. Um, And I think what we're seeing right now is they're attacking the kids. Uh, And they're doing it in some pretense of parental rights, which we all know is garbage. Uh, I can point to Senate Bill 150 in the state of Kentucky, which absolutely takes the rights away from parents, right? Parents now can't 
decide what their uh, kids' health care is going to look like. Parents can't get blockers to their own kids. Parents who want that can't get that because now other people's churches get to decide what your kids get access to, even when research and medicine and psychology all state that your kid needs this to survive. It's that part right there. The parental mm-hmm. rights of the people I want them to have to have parental yeah. rights. And even then, those parents are getting no new rights. It's like uh, it's like banning gay marriage and calling it straight rights. Like, in what way does a straight person get an extra right if I can't get married? That's ridiculous. Do you right? know some crazy stuff that was on the floor of Texas this year? There was actually, like, a bill on the floor. I don't believe that it passed, but there was a bill on the floor that would give a tax credit to heterosexual couples with kids. I remember this. I was... Mind blowing because at the time I was living in Texas, uh, I just only recently moved and um, I was I had my children um, with me and we went to the Capitol and we were boycotting you know with uh, Jonathan Venice and other people who have just moved to Texas and um, and it was just wild to me that it was just blatant bigotry and it was okay. Mm-hmm. That to say like, oh, if you are a heterosexual couple and you're having children for the sake of procreation, meanwhile, mm-hmm. I've adopted children that heterosexual couples couldn't take care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the rules are gone. Basic rules of decorum, basic rules of politics. They're, I mean, we, I personally, our commissioner of it, so in Kentucky, uh, you had me, the teacher of the year, resign. Um, and our um, education reporter for the whole state, she actually won multiple awards, just resigned um, because of the pressure from politics that were being put, from what I understand, even on the paper she worked at for her to talk a certain way. Our commissioner of education just resigned and, and effectively said, I will not harm queer kids, period, and I will not be a part of this. Um, there's because of how these these people are acting um senate bill 150 i've never seen kentucky politics be so ugly insidious or downright fascist they um so the senate committee that created it they posted it online at 11 p.m at night and voted on it at 11 a.m the next morning do you know who wrote the first two amendments to that bill i did because i was desperate um and I was like, how can we help? I don't know how to help. And then it occurred to me, like, maybe no one does. So I got here, Googled some other amendments and tried to mirror the language and sent it to every human being I could uh, who was there because I was at work. And literally at 11 a.m. I saw it um, posted as an official amendment to that bill. Um, they ended up changing that bill the last day of the session while the Democrats were at lunch. Um, and so it was passed in such a fast time. It was 32 pages. We couldn't read it in time. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just absolutely disgusting. Kids were organizing protests and the Republican legislature inside of the Capitol was making fun of the kids who were up. There were middle school kids standing up in front of a thousand people talking about their civil rights. And there were Republicans inside tweeting about the kids' hair being green and what an embarrassment these kids were. That's so mind-boggling. And it's not unique to Kentucky. I mean, we saw this with Tennessee. We're seeing this Mm -hmm. in Texas. I mean, Florida has just gone off the handle. Um, 
and even California right now, I, I follow a lot of California um, advocacy groups because I am originally from there. And mm-hmm. I'm seeing like there are bills that are being put in for propositions and they're, they're smart about what they're doing right now saying, remember what happened with Prop 8 when yes on 8 meant no gay marriage? You need to be smart when you vote because yes on this is going to mean trans children have no rights. Mm -hmm. And so they're being like really open and blunt about it, which I appreciate. I just hope that they do a good enough job with messaging because when these bills get before the public, I mean, I don't know why anybody has the right to vote on our civil rights, but here we are. This is Mm -hmm. this is the democratic republic that we live in. Yeah, I remember the night Antonin Scalia died. Uh, it was Valentine's Day, actually, or we, at least we were having a Valentine's party. Um, there was a lot of toasting after he died. <laughs> and then we watched them refuse to give Obama a judicial nominee. And I said to my husband, this is it. America's dead. Um, because we are, for the first time that I can think of, outside of maybe the Civil War, literally seeing the government refuse to do what it's supposed to do in favor of something political. And that set into motion a series of events that gave us this court that we have now, um, which, how do we solve that court? Um, we can look back at like Roosevelt, who was, helped, you know, who was having a huge power struggle between executive branch and judicial branch and worked around it i mean there's there are things that we could look at from the past it's just that i don't think right now that we have the politicians in place to do something about it because uh the democratic party is playing business as usual and and the republican party is playing to kill literally yeah oh uh it's so funny when people call me a democrat and i'm like, um, I'm just an anti-Republican. <laughs> it's like, I have a choice between, I don't know, some amorphous blob and someone with a gun that wants to kill me. I'm going to choose the blob, right? I don't think the blob's going to do anything, but at least it's not the guy trying to kill me. Um, and if that's the slogan of the entire Democratic Party, we're not trying to kill you, that's enough. They've really, that, that's what's so mind-boggling. They don't have to do anything. They just have to galvanize enough voters to win because so i live in rural conservative appalachian kentucky we are still majority democrat but nobody votes um so that's 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 the only goal of the democratic party get young people to vote um and there are enough issues that they should want to and i've learned this i'm not a politician by any stretch of the imagination but people want to do something right now People don't believe in politics as an avenue to get things done, but people want to change things. And, you know, it's been the lesson of the year for me, the lesson of the last couple of years, that if I come up with this idea of what I think needs to happen to help these kids and I say it out loud, I get so much support, like immediately. Uh, We are having an LGBTQ youth conference and it took just a couple of phone calls and I had senators, I had the governor, I had groups from... New York and um, Tennessee and Ohio and DC all coming for free to come just talk to these kids. Um, and th- that that's what I know. People want to help. People just don't believe in politics at all. And politics 
it, it is an environment that we have to use to help these kids um, because otherwise we're going to keep losing um, rights and ground. Right. If you don't play the game, you're going to lose. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where we're sitting at. If you, if you don't go and vote, then it's not going to go your way. Um, yeah. And let's, you know, I get it. Everyone has, every teacher who has ever existed has at some point wanted to do something because they knew it was right and chosen something else because of political expediency, because of you know, whatever else was going on in, in their lives. I've been that teacher who, you know, I don't know, wanted to do this lesson, but chose another. So I'm not trying to absolve myself when I make this criticism, but what I am seeing across the board in the state of Kentucky um, is that the vast majority of teachers just don't fight back. And they refuse to play. They think maybe they're not playing the game, but they're playing the game. When someone says, take down the pride flag, when someone says, erase this person from your lesson, and they do it, um, there is no amount of money or security that is going to make me pull the black names out of my syllabus. There is no amount that's going to make me pull the queer names. There is nothing anyone can do to make me out a trans child. It is not going to happen. Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't know what playing the game looks like, but I do know this. When our retirements were up um, to lo- uh, be lost in 2017 or 18, teachers swarmed the Capitol. Where are they now? Uh, there are some great teachers who are fighting, and I'm not saying that all teachers aren't, but I would love to see them fight for children the way they fought for their retirement. In this well, it's state. interesting. In, in Texas, they um, write it into your contract and your teaching license that you're not allowed to unionize. You're not allowed to critique the educational system without fear of having your license censured. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just sitting here going like, yeah, but we, if, if we all did it, like, right. what's going to happen? What are they going to so, do? Yeah. They, they... So, strikes are illegal in Kentucky. Uh, calling in sick isn't. Um, so, when we had our last governor, who was crazy, um, it was it was like all of us had the same idea at the same time. Like, let's just call in sick. Uh, so, our entire department, we were talking about it because they were, um, there was a sewage bill and they tried to add con- teacher retirement to it. So, we were all like, we're sick. I'm literally too stressed to work. Uh, so across the state, schools were shut down for like five days because no one was going in. Um, and that brought them to their knees, right? Uh, yeah, the whole idea that there can be a law to prevent a union ignores how unions started, right? They were never legally popular. The whole goal of a union is to disrupt the system, not be a part of the system. Um, yeah, you, here... I am very proud to be a part of uh, Kentucky 120 United. It's a new union here. And the other union has its uses. Um, That's KEA, which is a part of the NEA. But it's very politicized. It's very sort of in bed with politics as as is, as are. And so this group of angry women, about 10 of them, half of them from Appalachia, half of them from the city, we're like, you know what? We're done. We're starting our own union. And they were laughed at. Like, this is ridiculous. You're not going to do it. But then there were 20, and then there were 30, and then there were 40. Um, now there are thousands. And it has literal uh, political clout. 
And the American Federation of Teachers said, hey, if you want to be sort of under our umbrella, you're welcome and we will help you in whatever way that you want. And they have been super outspoken on trans youth. And what we've seen is in those districts where they're fighting the hardest, we don't have interpretations of that law, our, our anti-LGBTQ law, that are, that are as harmful. Um, and I don't know if it's, I'm assuming it's the same way everywhere in, in Kentucky, counties have control. So the best counties, basically the rule is if a parent asks, we have to tell. Um, and the kid gets to choose, right? The kid gets to choose what to tell us or what not to tell us. In the worst counties, it's like they're, it's entrapment. They don't tell the kids the new policy and then try to get the kids to tell if they're gay or trans. And then it's mandatory reporting to parents and child protective services. Like it is deadly. That's wild. I also like, I really struggle with a party that's so focused on local control and it's like really getting down to like school boards. Like I feel like school boards right now have more power than mayors. Um, and it, I feel like they shouldn't, like, all the, all these laws that are being passed and then the way that they're being interpreted by school boards or the policies that are being put in place by a school board, it just seems like overstepping. These are people who are just parents. It's a glorified PTA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the amount of... So we had um, a, a legal decision in 1991 in Kentucky that instituted something called the Kentucky Education Reform Act, because basically we found that kids living in poverty had really crappy educations, and our state constitution actually affords all students the right to an equitable education from the 1890s. It also prohibits religious funds, uh, funds being given to religious schools from the 1890s. Um, for anyone who thinks that's some um, new age idea that we separate. No, no, you have to open it. God forbid they do, right? Um, but we just last year erased, so what, what, what that did in, in a lot of ways, um, it created checks and balances in our school district. So we have the superintendent, but we also had a site-based decision-making council that was made, by, uh, made up of elected parents and teachers who were elected. Here's the crazy thing. They managed to erase that entirely and they called it parents' rights. So the only organization in the entirety of our education system that had actual parents who were in charge of curriculum was dissolved and Republicans won that by screaming about parent rights. I don't understand what's happening. Um, other, I think it's just people really hate LGBTQ people. Um, I think they really hate black and brown people. And the easiest way to show off that hate, I don't know how to turn this off, I'm sorry. <laughs> the easiest way to turn off, uh, the easiest way to demonstrate that hate um, is to vote Republican. Because well, you, all the polls show that most of the things that the Republican Party um, is doing are not popular, at least here, for example. Our anti-LGBTQ bill, over 70% of Kentuckians did not want this to happen, yet it happened. And it's not just gerrymandering. I know that it accounts for a lot of it, but it doesn't explain the absolute fearlessness with which Republicans act irresponsibly and innate. 
Yeah, I I don't believe in an afterlife per se. Like my my goal is just to be recycled back in here in many many different iterations. But I kind of fear for people who believe in an afterlife and think that they're doing the right thing when the right thing is harm harming others. Uh, I don't I don't often believe in hell, but when I see Mitch McConnell, I certainly hope. Just for a moment. <laughs> Maybe there is that's that's basically my belief, sorry. I don't believe in hell, but I think it would be nice. Yeah, there was it. a video recently where he like stopped speaking. Uh, and it like got a lot of you know attention and people were making fun of him and I'm not here for like the making fun of older people but what it made me think of was like why are these people running our government Mm -hmm. because I look at him and I look at Feinstein who I'm from California and her my like my entire life she had represented me until I moved out of the state my entire Mm -hmm. life and I'm just looking at it going like we had all these options with the Democratic Party um, in the last election, and it came down to two very old white men. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bernie Sanders, fantastic. I know that there's a lot of young people that love what he's doing, and he's doing great things, but he's still an old white man, and we have so much diversity, and the median age in this country is a millennial. Mm-hmm. So, like, why aren't there more people in our government who are my age, or younger, or slightly older, or even just a span of all of it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that video came out, and one, I don't like him in general, but I'm not here to make fun of him. I I feel that same way about, like, the governor of Texas. A lot of people make fun of him because he, well, he's, like, a horrible person, but he was in an accident that left him in a wheelchair, and so they make fun of him because he's in a wheelchair. But, Mm -hmm. like, I'm not here for that. Let's just let's just talk about the fact that he's a horrible person. He benefited from a, 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 an accident where he sued people and made millions of money off of it and then promptly passed a law saying that you can't do that. So, like, yeah, he's a horrible person, but I'm not going to go after him because of... At least not the physical. I would definitely go after other stuff. Yeah, um, absolutely. But not the physical stuff because no. it's gross. But I agree. Agreed. Um, I look at Mitch McConnell and I was like, God, if well, God's if a, if a, if a hell exists, please, you know. Yeah, by all I, means, I one hundred percent concur with every thought that you're having on this. I I know, and uh, I also uh, am very spiritual. Um, do not believe in any traditional uh, senses of the afterlife or even religion, and the way people tend to. Um, in fact, I would probably even go so far as to call myself Christian, and that's only because I've read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but it has nothing to do with any of these people around here. Uh, I don't see some, you know, hell to torment trans people in that Bible. Uh, I just see this idea that uh, we should be kind. <laughs> we should care about the poor, um, which is not to excuse the Old Testament or lots of other parts of the Bible. No, there's some pretty horrible things in there, but I believe my, like, when I read it, it was like, Jesus died for the sins of everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Um, and but, we don't even have to get into theology, but yeah, yeah. He, he says the whole, like, I came to, I didn't come, I came to fulfill this. I am setting you free. You are not bound to this, this stuff. Um, so I don't understand what people are reading. Yeah, I it's would wild. Say, uh, 
when I was yeah. when I was younger, I went through this like, I, and it was part of my my sexuality journey. I guess I like I didn't try to pray the gay way, but I knew that like maybe if I projected this like Christian life, that maybe I wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. Um, and so I went through this whole process when I was a teenager of like reading the Bible and all that stuff, and and I don't have a problem with Christianity from what I read. I have a problem mm -hmm. with how Christianity is playing out. In the yeah. And I think that can probably be said of anything that uh, takes power, right? I think what, what causes me to be so particularly outspoken on that issue is that it's the irony of it all, right? It's the harm not the poor becomes let's harm the poor. It's the don't, don't judge your neighbor becomes let's judge our neighbor super harshly. It's the suffer unto me children, which becomes children are idiots and have no rights and don't, you know, it's, it's let's take this and twist it until it somehow becomes the exact opposite of what it says uh, and then use that word, right? Um, there was a Newsweek article last week, I think, um, and they were interviewing all of these pastors and priests who are like, okay, this moment we're having, this sort of fascist post-Trump or sparked by Trump moment has caused people to be so violent, vicious, angry, and hateful of this concept woke that they can't understand. So they define anything remotely progressive as woke that people are starting to get angry at sermons when Christ is cited. Uh, and so they, they, there, there's a particular pastor who says that he, he was reading the turn the other cheek uh, sermon and that people were coming angrily and saying, you shouldn't be reading this woke garbage. And he was like, this is Jesus. Um, but and he, he said, someone said, maybe that was good then, but that doesn't work now. So I'm like, wow, uh, a Christianity that hates Jesus is uh, an interesting Christianity. It, it's a very interesting time that we are living in. And like, mm -hmm. and I don't know... I'm at one of those places like I was when I was a kid. I don't know what the future is. So before we wrap up, um, we've got all these laws being thrown around in pretty restrictive environments for school communities. What are some things that you think the schools can do to help create inclusive spaces, um, even if these laws have restrictions for them? Um, I will cite... Um, Kentucky Commissioner of Education, Jason Glass, um, whose number one piece of advice is do not obey rules in advance. And I think do not ask questions about the rules in advance. And what, what teachers sometimes have a tendency to do because they're rule followers and teachers are communicators and they like clarity. I'll give you, so if, if your superintendent says, remember, we don't have wall hangings about sexuality. Do not ask, does a rainbow flag count, right? They're hoping that you will, um, you will tell them it does in your own words. They're hoping that you will just preemptively take it down. I say whatever role that you're seeing, um, take it in the least restrictive way possible and refuse to do harm. So if we look at the example that's, I know, which is um, Kentucky's example, which is no instruction or presentation on gender, gender identity, or 
um, gender expression. Okay, all human beings have all three of those. So it has nothing to do with LGBTQ people. We know the intent was that, right? But they wrote it ambiguously so that they could say, we weren't trying to be anti-LGBTQ. Meanwhile, we're taking out books about gay penguins, right? Um, so I say, read the bills, do not obey in advance, fight the system. Um, you, this is, this is just a truth for any teacher teaching in Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, probably all the square states over there too. Um, you can't follow the rules and be a good person. Period. period. You cannot enforce every rule that they're telling you and be a good person. Every single teacher out there knows that there are times when you let the kid retake the test. There are times when you say, you know what, we're not worrying about homework this month because you have other needs that matter more than what the paper says. And your LGBTQ kids have lots of needs that matter more than what that paper says. So refuse to be a part of it. Do whatever you need to do to sleep at night. Um, and it's really possible to make inclusive spaces. Um, it really just means refusing to pretend that queer people don't exist, taking lessons from the past and coding things as queer, even if they're not queer. Um, there are so many ways to do that uh, if you're willing to think about what it looks like. Um, and what I, the, my biggest piece of advice, just from a legal perspective, there is one human being in your school who has the most rights of anyone else, and that's the student. So if you're not allowed to say gay, they are. Encourage them to. If you're not allowed to present them with um, short stories about queer lives, then let them write short stories about their queer lives and share those. Um, that's my big dream right now is creating some curriculum that is created on the spot by students and is shared with each other. Um, and I was doing that my last semester. Um, my school had a no racial rule, which we broke the heck out of. Um, and the students created the lit. We talked about the lit. Sometimes it was anonymous. Sometimes the students put their names on it. But it was great because they were creating and we were also getting to talk about their lives. So include your students' lives as much as possible and signal to them that you care about their lives. Awesome. Before we wrap up, you have the opportunity to ask me a question, whatever comes to the top of your, your mind. All right. Uh, so you were almost Texas uh, Teacher of the Year. What would your platform have been? Uh, so won. let me preface this for everybody. I was competing for Texas Teacher of the Year because I'd won at my district level and gotten like designations that come with that and whatnot. And so I made it to the round just before the Teacher of the Year round, which is the regional round. Um, and so when I did that, I had to come up with my platform, um, which was Love the Children. Um, when I gave my speech at Convocation, which is not common everywhere, I don't think. I don't know how many schools do convocation. It was new to me when I came to Texas. Um, but at convocation, when I gave my speech, it was about how I was outed in high school. 
um, I was ostracized by students and teachers and um, had a really rough time in my family for a little bit. Uh, the irony is my parents don't even remember. Um, but I had one teacher check on me and ask how I was doing and I am still connected to that teacher 20 years later because she made the biggest impact for me and I only had that person for one year because she left the school um, and so she showed what it means to me to care for your students to love your students and that was what I said is as my big platform is that at the at the end of the day we've just come out of isolation I'm not going to say we came out of a pandemic because it's still happening. We, we just came out of isolation. And what these kids need most is someone to care for them. Um, and so as my Teacher of the Year platform was, we have to get back to caring about the students. And here's the thing, that's not what's happening. And when we look no. at all these policies that are being enacted and... Um, things that the education associations or administrations are coming up with um, at the state level, it's really not about caring about the students, especially when you say things like parental rights, like where is the student in that? It's nowhere. Yeah. I say to any student in K through 12 in the United States, do not trust your teacher unless they prove otherwise. Um, obviously there are situations where the teacher might be the most trustworthy person, but especially middle school, high school, I would tell my nephews, make them prove to you that they're trustworthy or else just assume because you don't know who, who you know, what side they're on. Um, and I think that's a lovely message that if we just love them all first, they wouldn't have to ask these questions. 100%. And I think that I tell my students, I told them a lot that uh, teachers are the best actors. You really don't know what you're getting, which is why it's so important mm -hmm. to make sure that they prove that they're trust trustworthy because mm -hmm. we don't share 100% of ourselves with you, just like I don't share 100% of myself with my children. Um, mm -hmm. Children get a portion of what who an adult is. So um, I think that that's a really important message, is to make sure to ensure that someone has proven that they're trustworthy to you. And, and that can look different for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. So... A little bit of it has to go with your gut instinct, but a little bit also has to go with how they treat you, the things that they say, pay mm -hmm. attention to how they respond to other people. And you had mentioned that you and I, because we were queer or um, future queers as kids, we listened, we heard mm -hmm. things, and we paid attention. And I think that you have the ability as a student to do that as well now is like pay attention to what the adults are saying that's going to tell you whether mm -hmm. or not you can trust mm -hmm. very good advice um and i like how it ties to your platform or your would-be platform before before we sign off um what is your book tell us where we can get it what's the best way to get it to give you the most um i luckily i get the same amount no matter where a person gets it you can get it at any major uh bookseller that's out there so amazon or um, barnes and noble etc uh it's called gay poems for red states uh and let's see what else might you need if you go to your local bookstore ask them for it um, um just because uh it's nice to have local bookstores and uh 
just to ask for it. But yeah, um, anybody out there wants a lesson plan, contact me, wants to do anything with it. I really am interested in, um, in works that help young people feel uh, that poetry is accessible. And this is super accessible work. Um, and my biggest hope, my, this, is, this is just something I honed as a belief when I, when I was a teacher. It's that if you can be super vulnerable, if you can literally sort of lay out in front of someone standing right in front of you, here is who I am, um, they, they almost always mirror back that, that energy to you. Um, because I think we're all really desperate to, to really connect with other human beings. Um, and so I thought, well, what if I did this in poetry? Well, would people respond in poetry? And it's, it's amazing the number of people who've read this and then who send me poems. Um, and it's not like I'm, it's not like in the book, like write me a poem. It was just this, this hope that I had um, that somehow this would make people write poetry and people are writing me poetry. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's the plug for the book, but do whatever you need to do to make sure that your students feel that they can express. Well, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me. I really appreciate it. And thank you all at home for enjoying this episode of Teaching While Queer. Thank you. Bye. Brian, you're beautiful. I appreciate oh, it all. Oh, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Teaching Wild Queer. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Leave a review, and that would help out tremendously. You can also support the podcast by going to www.teachingwildqueer.com and hit support the show. Thanks so much, and have a great day.